Welcome to the Jesus the Game Changer podcast from Olive Tree Media, hosted by Carl Fays. In today's podcast, Laurel Bunker describes her Jesus-led path to becoming Dean of Campus Ministries at Bethel College. She shares the challenges she experienced and the inspirational game changers who encouraged and motivated her. When you were growing up, was faith, church, Christianity just part of your family? It was part of my family. I come from 150 years of black Catholics. So I was raised Catholic, um, baptized, as was the standard, and grew up in the church. My grandfather was one of the Knights of Columbus. And so um, growing up, that was great. But growing up in the state of Minnesota as a black Catholic was a little bit different. Most other kids were coming from the African Methodist Episcopalian or Baptist or Church of God in Christ. So it was different growing up. So were you a, like, were you a small part of a Catholic church? Is that what you mean as African American? I was in a black Catholic church. Okay. We were actually okay. in a black Catholic church. And there are pockets of black Catholics in the United States, in um, Washington, D.C., Chicago, and in New Orleans. There are large pockets of Catholics. Um, but my church was black Catholic, named after St. Peter Claver. And uh, my parents are still members of that church. My grandparents were members of that church. So I grew, grew up singing some gospel, but it was a very multi-ethnic church for the most part. A lot of black folks and white folks together. Always had priests who were white visiting priests from Africa. Um, but it was a challenge for me because no one looked like me. Okay. Jesus didn't look like me. The priest didn't look like me. The nuns didn't look like me. And so I think in terms of faith formation, those were difficult years because it, like many African-Americans, the challenge was, is Jesus white? And if Jesus is white, and I am black and the child of Ham, do I belong? Am I wrong? It did, so you, you've obviously dealt with that. A lot. <laughs> so yeah. So yeah. How, how, did you, how did you get from that space of wondering if you belonged to someone who's now committed to ministry and leadership? You know, as a kid, when things were difficult, I used to walk to the church from our home, which was just a few short blocks away, and I would sit in the pew and I would stare at Christ on the cross and I would say, what do you want with me? And I was, I was enamored with Jesus. I was enamored with the idea that in my own brokenness and in a broken world, there was actually someone sent of God, wrapped in flesh as God, to be able to do something about the world that we were in. And so I pleaded with Jesus to make himself known to me. And there were people who came along in my life in various places and times who would encourage me in my faith, would hear my musings about Jesus and would encourage me. Uh, worship, gospel, hymns sing, being sung in my family were an encouragement to me. But it was really in college when I saw a group of young people who refused to go to a kegger and were actually just watching a movie who identified themselves as Christians. And I said, well, I'm a Christian, but you seem happy not being following the crowd. And they invited me to something called Crew, Campus Crusade for Christ. And it was there for the first time that the word of God was opened to me and uh, the word of God was placed in my hands because in the Catholic church, you don't open the Bible, you don't touch it. And so it was placed in front of me and the word was read to me. And suddenly it was as if scales fell from my eyes and I could see that Jesus was not just past my fingertips, that he had actually come for me and to save me. And that changed everything. Isn't that interesting that you, you grew up enamored with Jesus, but you didn't feel like you knew Jesus. Is that fair? That's or, fair. Yeah. I felt like he was past my fingertips. He was the fresco on the ceiling. Uh, his eyes were watching me, but I was in, always sinful and never 
able to be loved by God. Part of that, I think, came from a Catholic upbringing around great aunts and others who actually taught us to fear God, that God was to be feared. He was never to be a friend. He was not someone who smiled upon you. Some of that was the Catholic social teaching. Some of that was the sense of, I think, um, works righteousness that we learned that it was not simply salvation, it was how you lived your life. And so I think there was always a sense from the elders that raised us to always have a sense of fear of God, never a sense of he would be the daddy who would pick you up and dance with you or place you in his lap or teach you the truth so or lead you beside quiet waters. That was not who I knew God to be. But when I looked in the face of Jesus, my heart was compelled to say, I know something of you and I want to know more of you. So you read, read the Bible for yourself, you've gained that personal relationship with Jesus. Does still the old part of what your auntie's taught sit in the background as well now? Not any longer, because I had to deal with, I think, a number of difficult things. I mean, in the Catholic Church, women were nuns or teachers or, or mothers, and those are all noble things, but certainly not pastors. And so once I really started to get a hold of the word of God, I knew I couldn't stay in the Catholic church any longer. And I remember having uh, gone into a Baptist church here, um, not far from the neighborhood I was raised in, and I saw people lifting their hands and worshiping African Americans who were full of joy, and I just said, I want that. And when the pastor uh, gave an invitation to come to the front, I felt my body stand up and I ran to the front of the church and I threw myself I felt like on the mercy of God and that pastor, and I said, please save me. I want to be happy. I want what you have. Um, that same pastor is the one that identified a call in my life. And as a black Baptist from Jackson, Mississippi, the Reverend Dr. Earl F. Miller took a chance on me because 25 years ago, even in the American Baptist Church, they were not ordaining women. And so I all of a sudden was terrified because I knew this man is trusting me and God is trusting me and I'm going to stand in the midst of a culture that has said you do not belong as a black person, you do not belong as a woman and yet I'm going to stand in this place and preach the gospel. It was pretty absurd. Yeah. So that's been how many years now? 25. So left the Catholic Church, gave my life to Christ really in Campus Crusade, went to a Baptist church, went to a Lutheran seminary and then got filled with the Holy Spirit. So you're either, you know, just wonderfully balanced or totally confused. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was, I was looking for Jesus. One of the things, Carl, that happened in this journey is that in some ways I learned to be more denominational than I learned to be faithful. I didn't want to learn what we did on second and fourth Sundays. I wanted to learn how to be faithful like Peter was when he was crucified upside down. I wanted to be like Paul was when he spoke with the Corinthian church and said, don't weep for me, when he knew that his life was coming to an end. I wanted to be like other Christians that I heard about around the world who didn't fear death because I saw such a separation between the word of God and what we said we were supposed to be and what I saw outside of the church. I saw infidelity, I saw anger, I saw pastors who were hurt deeply by the way that people treated them. And I said, Lord, you have given me a heart to love you, and if I can do anything about this, I will. But what I also saw were beautiful churches on every corner and people outside of those churches that didn't feel like they belonged. And somehow I felt like God was pulling on me saying, you're going to be the bridge to get those single mothers 
who are standing out on this corner at 10 o'clock at night, you're gonna get them into that church and you're also gonna sit and implore with those old school pastors to love and to see these people not as the scourge of the earth, but as people who belong in that pew, just like the people who bought that pew with their devotional dollars. And so I've always been a bit of an anomaly, but I think Jesus was an anomaly, so I'm not afraid of being Absolutely. different. So now you're at the Dean of Students in a, in a, a Christian university with Mostly white kids, is that right? Mostly white kids. So why the move and then what's that like? But first, why the move into Bethel University? I believe that God actually placed me there. I was the 11th hour candidate. I had opened an email. I was running a nonprofit organization here in the cities that helped low-income single mothers break the cycle of poverty by going back to college. And I opened an email from a student, um, a young man from South Africa, as a matter of fact, who had said some things to me that were confusing coming from this institution. I had known people in the institution, and I was confused by what he wrote, and so I called a couple of friends that I had known over the years, and I said, you know, I don't wanna get this young man in any trouble, but I'm concerned about what he's writing. It doesn't sound like it is central to the gospel. It sounds like there's a mixture here, a pluralism that I'm concerned about. And the gentleman that I said, that I was speaking with said, you know, you ought to apply for the campus pastor position, but we're down to our final two candidates. And I felt like the Holy Spirit leapt in me. He said, you know, let me talk to the committee and I'll call you right back. I called my husband and I said, babe, the job of a lifetime might be open. He said, well, let's touch and agree and believe God. And my friend Leon called me back five minutes later and said, get your stuff in. And so I believe that God um, placed me in that. I have told people when I've preached though, Carl, if I would have looked at that job, through natural eyes, I would have never applied. Everyone before me, with the exception of one, were white men with PhDs. Everyone before me were individuals who, in some way or form or fashion, outranked me. And I would have thought, why would they have wanted some black girl from St. Paul who was raised Catholic? God forbid, this is a Swedish Baptist institution. Why would they want her? But that's a question that I asked the search committee. I said, everyone before me have been white men with PhDs, why me? And they said, you know, we've always tried to find the right person in terms of pedigree. Perhaps we have found the right person in terms of spirit. Mm -hmm. And 11 years later, I am pastoring young people who I love and traveling the country and traveling the world and um, being able to speak with people around the world. So God has an incredible sense of humor. And I think he, throughout the word of God, has used people who are incredibly unqualified and so he yeah, there's, a, there's a bit of a theme through scripture on that, isn't there? Absolutely. I mean, Mary Magdalene being one of the first to come to the tomb. Are you kidding me? Mary and Martha, the motley crew of the fishermen stumbling around, Peter denying Jesus, Peter um, wanting to walk on water. I mean, they were imperfect people. Moses was a murderer. David was a whoremonger. You know, Abram was a liar. Sarah laughed. D was there any moments where you, because obviously when you started that role, you must have still thought, am I the right person? Were there any moments where you kind of where that shifted to knowing that you were the right person? Or was it always a sense of confidence? You know, those first years, they were very difficult. I came in in 2008, August of 2008. And of course, here in the United States, that was the year that we brought into office our first African-American president. And so being in a predominantly white institution, there were young people who, because of their own upbringing, were terrified. I had some young people say to me, Pastor Laurel, come and, and pray. We've got some young people who are terrified. And I said, for what? They said, well, 
there are people who think that if we have an African-American president that all African-Americans are going to flip out and there's going to be a race riot. And I said, well, after 400 years of slavery, I think we would have done that by now, but I think we'll be all right. Um, but I found that I was mistreated more as a woman mm. by people um, who did not want to hear from me, who felt based on their theological upbringing that I could be a prophetess, I could be a teacher, but I by no means should sit in a pulpit. But the other interesting thing was there were African-Americans and people of color there who felt like I wasn't angry enough, that my job was to put white people in their place uh, within the institution, um, to call out racism, and because I didn't do that either, um, I got all kind of all names thrown at me there as well. So it was a very painful process, and all I could do was to continue to remember the call of God on my life and the words of Earl Miller who said, go to seminary, you're going to need it. As a woman and as a black woman, you're going to need it. And it's remained true. I have needed it. Um, I've had people say grotesque things to me before I've gone up to preach. I've had people say, are you going to preach as a black woman? Well, I've, <laughs> I don't know that there's any other way for me to do it. Yeah. Um, so people's awkwardness around my personhood continues to flesh out. But the reality is I know and love Jesus. I know and love the gospel. I'm called to preach it. This is the car the Holy Spirit is driving. If it's a Maserati and you're driving a Dodge, that's your issue. <laughs> I am driving this car, and, and I am going to let the world know Jesus is yet alive. Well, one of the things we want to look, look at is the theme of justice. Yeah. And obviously, um, just in your story, that's, uh, that's kind of like a foundational concept. What did Jesus have to say about justice? You know, it's interesting when we look at the Gospels, when we look at the Old Testament and we look at the New Testament, justice is a consistent theme throughout it, especially in books like Amos, if we want to choose Amos 5 or Micah 6, 8, which we love to quote. Isaiah is probably the seminal work that we look at. You know, we can't find Jesus necessarily preaching specific things using the word justice. But I think we see that Jesus lived a life of justice. We see that the way that women are treated in the world is because of Jesus and the way that he looked at women and children. Before that, women and children were property. And we see in much of the world that women and children still are property, that their lives can be snuffed out with no thought. But it's because of Jesus. It was because of the way that he chose in the face of power to give dignity and respect to the least of these, to the lepers, to the prostitute that could have been stoned. Uh, it is because of him that Jesus lived an impeccable life of justice that we now have a theology of justice that we can now pattern our lives after. Do, do, you, do you see Jesus being very different from his culture at the time? Absolutely. I mean, I think that we look at the tradition of the Jewish culture out of which he came. You know, women were to sit on one side or to sit in the back of a synagogue or a temple. Men were in the front. So you think about the story of the woman that was bent over, who Jesus, as he was preaching, stopped everything that he was doing and saw her and didn't go to the back to her, but called her forward in the midst of his, pre in the midst of his preaching and laid hands on her. I can't imagine what it was like. A pin must have dropped. All of them must have looked and said, what on earth? Or you think of those who were angry with him for healing on the Sabbath. He said, you untie your donkeys. Should not this woman go free on the Sabbath? 
Jesus was completely countercultural, which is why they wanted to run him off a cliff, which is why we see they wanted to kill him from the very beginning. But I also think it was because he didn't fit the picture of what they expected the Messiah to be, and yet he proclaimed constantly who he was, and it angered them. I don't want to blame them. They were zealous for their faith. But at the same time, he came not as David, but he came as one to set captives free. And many of those captives were the ones that he also said to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you lead them to the door of heaven and you slam it in their faces. I can only imagine how red hot their faces must have been when he spoke and when he stood up in the synagogue and read, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the good news. I mean, he was just a countercultural rabbi who hung out with people and touched lepers, hung out with women, uh, pardoned prostitutes. He was just like no other, and that's why the world will never be the same. In, in the American culture, uh, and this is what you must be dealing with all the time, there's a, there's a history where the church hasn't actually been what you've just said Jesus was. How have you dealt with that? You know, it's been difficult. I feel as though in some ways, as I said earlier, my job has been in some ways to be a bridge builder and it's been difficult. Again, there are people who would rather have me be angry and take a position that is clearly articulating the plight of African-Americans in the country. Uh, there are those who would say, we don't want you to speak at all because you're a woman and your job is to stay at home and care for my husband, and I would say, oh, my husband is well taken care of, thank you very much. He's the Nehemiah on the wall who is watching all of you, <laughs> getting ready to say, back away from the woman. So, you know, it's, um, it's been a peculiar and interesting thing, but I think I have tried to follow the master. I have tried to follow him, because if I get caught up, Carl, in what the expectations of people are of me, I will fall, and that's what we've seen in the world. How many pastors have we seen fall because the expectation is, is they're the newest thing or they've got the best podcast or they've got X number of followers. Who cares? That's not going to get them into heaven. That's not going to please the father when he stands before them one day and, and opens the, the, their lives. Have we been faithful? Have we stood for those who did not have a voice? Do we care for the poor, the widow, and the orphan? Do we care about what's happening in Africa? Do we care about the plight? of North Koreans. I've stood in churches and asked people, are you aware of what's happening to Christians around the world? Do you know how many have no idea? Not just African-American churches or white churches, they have no idea what's happening in the underground church in China. And if we don't align ourselves with the global church, we will continue to be focused on me, myself, and I, and our Western leanings about what we think is right. We will talk ourselves out of the Holy Spirit. We will talk ourselves out of the reality that we need the Holy Spirit to interact and to be bold. We will honor our theological greatness, but we will deny what is happening in other parts of the world. I want no part of that. I want to be like the master. It, it, as we look at the kind of shift in America, and there's still a long way to go, I would guess, if put, not putting words in your mouth. But the, the church following Jesus and African-American leaders, they were actually motivated, not just by anger and equality, but they were motivated by the teaching and the justice of Jesus. Is that right? Is that how you see some of those leaders? Absolutely. I mean, when we look at the, the history of slavery, um, though there, I think, is a contingent that exists right now that would say that slaves 
followed the slave religion of the master without looking at the fact that Christianity was in Africa long before it was in Europe, and Europeans simply co-opted Christianity to try to make much ado about their power during slavery. The bottom line is, is that we heard, even if it was through what the master was preaching, we heard the story of Moses and we knew that the story of Moses and letting my people go was the great cry, not only of the Hebrew people, but it was our cry. And so when you think about Africans who stole away into the forest and would turn a kettle upside down and they would put their faces under that kettle to trap the sound of their moaning and their crying, when black preachers, African preachers, would stand up in the middle of the forest and preach a gospel, it gave Africans who were enslaved a vision that there would be freedom. It is what gave Sojourner Truth an understanding of that there could be freedom. It's what gave us our black Moses. It, so the gospel of freedom has been a freedom that was placed in our hearts by God. And I believe that is what has sustained us and sustained the black church black colleges, of which there are more than 100 in this country, I don't think it was because it was the master's religion. I think it was because we knew God all along, and he is who has sustained us. If we were less than who God had called us to be, we would have been dead. We would have been exterminated. But we yet stand tall and proud as great people because of who God is in us. And some of the, the greats like, say, for instance, Rosa Parks, which people think about as just the lady who wouldn't move on the bus, mm -hmm. which created really was a, a genesis moment, I guess. Her motivation? You know, Rosa Parks, Mama Rosa, as we call her out of honor, I think her, in her own words, her own motivation wasn't just that she was tired that day. There were many days before that that she was tired. Rosa Parks was a consistent member of the NAACP. She had a brilliant uh, political mind. Uh, Mama Rosa said that she wasn't just tired that day of, uh, after a long day of working. She was tired of giving in to a racist establishment. And I think that Rosa Parks knew that day that that seminal, that act, that moment was going to be a catalyst for change. And it's what we loved about her and about Fannie Lou Hamer and others. They laid their lives down for us. They knew it wasn't about exhaustion. None of us have the ability just to give up when we're physically tired. Jesus was physically tired. Jesus said, take the cup away from me. Jesus was exasperated at the foolishness of those who followed him. But he knew he had an assignment. He said, my will is to do the will of my father and to finish his work. And I think that Rosa Parks knew as a diehard member of the NAACP, as a political leader, as someone who sat with Martin Luther King Jr., as someone who prayed with her husband, she knew that that moment was one where she could catalyze and move a movement of people to recognize their own dignity. And if she was not going to give in anymore to a racist establishment, neither did they. Isn't it interesting under the providence of God that she, that's in the city of Montgomery with a very young new Baptist pastor. Give me your reflection on Martin Luther King. You know, I've had the privilege over the years of getting to know his daughter, Bernice. And the first time I met her, I brought her up here to Bethel and I brought her to Bethel on the 50th anniversary of when Martin Luther King would have come to Bethel and spoken uh, at our institution. And I remember looking at her and feeling as though I was almost flushed with embarrassment because I stared in her face. Her face is like him, her mouth is like him, her preaching cadence is like him. 
And I got to sit with her in a hotel room and just talk with her, and she has become so dear to me. I think that Martin was chosen to be in that place because he had a level of courage. I've read many of his writings, and it's not because he wanted to rise to the occasion. I think like any man, as he said, longevity has its place. He didn't have any desire to have his home bombed. He didn't want to put his children in harm's way. But he knew the word of God. And when you know the word of God and have been saved by the word of God, you know when God is calling you to a moment that is beyond your own strength. And I think that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. knew that there was no turning back and that he had to, because of the word of God, lead a people forward. I'm sure he had moments of exhaustion, moments of fear. I've taken students to Montgomery and we have visited um, the Rosa Parks Museum. We sat with uh, two individuals who were in their late 80s, the Gretzes, uh, who walked with Martin Luther King Jr., who were white pastors who moved to Montgomery right at this time and who became Rosa Parks pastors. They were some of the few white Montgomerians who drove people during the Montgomery boys, bus boycott. They're still alive to this day and now live in Montgomery and they walked with Martin. There were days of perplexing pain and sorrow for Martin Luther King Jr. and we want to make him an icon and we want to make him um, a man of stone and steel. He was somebody's son, somebody's husband, somebody's father. He was a great preacher. But I think he was a man who knew that God was calling him like God had called Moses to lead his people out and there was simply no turning back. You used the word icon. It's interesting that these two icons of that movement, which uh, you know, changed, shifted this nation, were actually two icons representing and seeking to live out the life and teaching of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you know, the reality is, whether we look at him or Martin Luther King Jr. or Ralph David Abernathy, or we look at uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, or we look at the Reverend Jesse Jackson, there are thousands of people whose names we will never know, who by faith walked from Selma to Montgomery. We think about Viola Liuzzo, a white woman with five children from Detroit, who knew that a moment had come and who left her family in Detroit and drove people back and forth during the Montgomery bus boycott, drove people back and forth during the march to Selma and whose life was snuffed out by a Klansman. There are thousands of people whose names we do not know, who believe, I, I think believe and know that they felt the same call to rise up as Martin did that day. I've taken students and we've walked across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. We've stood at the crest of it, and we have almost, if we could squint our eyes, could have seen that line of um, Alabama um, state troopers on their horses who ran people over on Bloody Sunday. And I think we all know that the life that we're living today, the reason you and I sit across from one another today is because of the courage of a few that allow the many today to live the life that we live. And so today we must have the same kind of courage that they had. We're dealing with ugliness today as they did then. And uh, we have to stand only in Jesus. There's no other way forward. Just want to shift sort of tact a little and, and go back to the slave years and your understanding of that time around the issue of education. Mm -hmm. Now, 
I was surprised to, to read that actually a slave, an African-American slave being given any sort of education in a period of time was illegal and would be punished. Absolutely. It was sure death. It was not only sure death for that slave, because slaves, of course, were inferior. I mean, that was, that was part of the way that the master was able, outside of pure brutality, to continue to subjugate them was to keep them unlearned without the slave master knowing that they were learned individuals who could read the stars anyway. So what he tried, or they tried to deny them, really didn't work to the full extent. So I think pure brutality coupled with what they knew would happen, not only to them, but to the white women oftentimes were the ones who would teach them. It was oftentimes, of course, a, a, a black woman, a mammy, at the time who was raising a, a young white children who would sit and would nur not only nurse them, but raise them. And so there was a love relationship oftentimes that these young white children of the master had for them, but there was an enduring sense of who that love that oftentimes called white women to want to teach the slaves that they sat with every day. But not only was it sure death or at least a brutal beating for that slave, it was often uh, a great warning and perhaps a beating for uh, that, the daughter or the son of that white slave owner as well. Now, education did become a part of, of their lives in certain areas. How did that happen and who did it? Absolutely. I mean, there were those, uh, just as we talked about, uh, those who either picked up the education of the master or listened to someone reading. We were people of ingenious mind who continued to know and understand and memorize things. There were still white people who dared to risk their lives to teach a few to read. And those few that learned to read taught others to read, taught others to sound out things. Uh, taught others how to uh, use um, agriculture and other things to know how to understand. And so there were those who still had courage and the few taught more few and the few taught others. And I think that continued to grow into a movement where after slavery and we went into the, the, the years of uh, the restoration of, of our country, if we want to call it that, and then Jim Crow, we started to see the one-room schoolhouses where we saw African-Americans in very substandard educational settings learning how to read and write. And so though it was substandard compared to what white children were getting, we still saw that our dignity meant that we were going to risk everything to learn how to learn. Some of the leaders of that movement were actually Christian and church leaders. Absolutely, because we, they had the dignity, they had our respect. Uh, many pastors, African-American pastors today, still are what we would call bivocational. So we had pastors who were sharecroppers. We had pastors who were working the land, but then on the weekends, they would become deacons and they would become our pastors and they would learn how to preach the gospel, oftentimes from memory, or because we came from griots, we came from storytellers, they knew how to tell the story. But definitely, the Richard Allens and the others of their day were those who pushed the fact that we had the right to be educated people, that we were educated people whose education, as we knew it from our motherland, was being stripped. 
And there were those who struggled because they didn't want us to be educated in a white man's understanding. The same thing happened to First Nations people, to Native Americans. There were those who feared that the education that we were going to get was simply going to dumb us down and make us the step stool of white people. So we needed the Richard Allens, we needed the pastors, not only to be able to be great preachers, but great teachers of education as well. Mm. Rich, now Richard Allen, just as an aside, his church is called Bethel Church, isn't it? Absolutely. Which is an interesting connection. Absolutely. So uh, Richard Allen, um, with others, started this Bethel Church. One of the first things he started was a school. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Uh, you know, I think that Richard Allen was a courageous individual. I think any preacher back then was a courageous individual. But I also think it must have been something that he felt as though he was standing up in a moment and looking out on the crest of the future and what could be. And I think he knew that um, this was as it was for Rosa after him and Martin after him, as it would be for the founders, as it would be for W.E.B. Dubois, as it would be um, for, for the founder of Tuskegee Institute, Booker T. Washington. Uh, I think he knew that this was a moment where things could shift if he would continue little by little to stand up in the face of a culture that despised him and called us forward into greatness. You just mentioned a whole bunch of names. Yeah. Who for you has been the great inspiration? Oh, I would say uh, the great Booker T. Washington. Um, but I would also say W.E.B. Du Bois. I would say, oh no, you know who I loved? Mary McLeod Bethune, who founded Bethune-Cookman College in Florida. Uh, because to be a woman, to be a black woman, she became good friends, I believe, with Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, these are women who really uh, stepped out into a time where even some of their own brothers weren't supporting them. It's one thing to be an African-American leader and to be a black man and an African-American man who's a leader, but then to be an African-American leader who is a woman is a completely different thing. So Mary McLeod Bethune, for me, is one of those who I applaud in my heart my grandmother, who met my grandfather at Northwestern in the School of Dentistry, where he graduated in 1929, who had 10 children, uh, who continued to love and serve my grandfather, though she was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Uh, to see how uh, my father and my grandfather and others loved her, and how she remained a woman of dignity and a poet and a brilliant woman, despite the fact that she wrestled with mental illness. I've been surrounded by great people all of my life, and I wish that more of America, more of American history would teach the greatness of African Americans, not dumb us down to what people see in the popular media. Um, as I said earlier, there are over 100 historically black colleges and universities. Many of them were founded by individuals who were uh, Quakers, like Cheney State, Cheney University, which is in Pennsylvania, is the oldest historically black college in the United States of America that was founded by a Quaker, someone who bequeathed a tenth of all of his land to be able to uh, educate uh, freed slaves because he saw as people left from the South and moved up to Philadelphia and other areas that they struggled to be able to get jobs because we also had such a large influx of European immigrants as well. And so people would hire, of course, Italians or Irish over African Americans. And so he started Cheney Institute to be able to educate African Americans. Uh, there are great institutions as well that were 
that are historically black colleges, HBCUs, um, that were founded by white men who were abolitionists who felt the need to say, I'm going to carry this on, I'm gonna take what I do have, and I'm gonna educate every Negro I can so that they can see that their lives are valuable. And so I think there's a great debt that we owe to those who also, as white Americans, must have put their reputations on the line for the sake of the benefit of individuals like myself. So for you personally, if I said, so how do you see Jesus as a game changer? How do you respond? All of the world as we know it has been flipped upside down by the person of Jesus. Even if we were never to open the Bible, you could find the historical, verifiable reality of Jesus Christ. We have our time. Everything that we know is because of Jesus, but it's not just because he was a historical figure. Jesus is changing the lives of millions of people around the world as we know it. Jesus is what gave courage to 21 men to kneel in the, stand, in the sand in Libya and to give their lives. Jesus is the reason why the underground church exists. Jesus is the reason why there is a 15-year-old young woman right now in Nigeria who is still in custody of those who are extremists who will not let her go because she will not deny her faith. Jesus is the God, as Ortberg said, who will not go away. That you can pull up all of history and you will find that Jesus is there. He changed my life when I was a huddled mass on the ground a broken young woman who knew religion but did not know Jesus. And because of him, I continued to go and to grow and to study the gospel. And that is why I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, the risen King. He's a game changer because he changed my life. And because he changed my life, I change other people's lives. And other people will continue to change other people's lives because Jesus is alive and he will be alive forevermore. That's why he's a game changer, because he's a world changer. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the radio, video and podcast ministry of Olive Tree Media, visit olivetreemedia.com.au forward slash donate.